scoring position. They ask him to bunt and no play. No play. We're watching the plate umpire. But the plate umpire, I thought, was pointing that the ball was dead. And the Padres are going to really cut out and argue that one. Wait a minute. You know, they always say that the coolest thing about baseball is no matter when you watch it, you're probably going to see something that you've never seen before. And that triple play that we just played there is kind of an example of something you don't see every day in baseball. No, that, that was pretty bizarre. So, welcome to the Sportscasters proper. It is uh, episode 15 of season 2, April 17, 2012. I'm the host, Steve Bennett. My co-host is Don Russ. And we're live from Buffalo, New York. Got a great, unique kind of show lined up for you today. Kirk Morrison, we don't usually have athletes on that much, but Kirk Morrison is kind of uh, one of us. Not only does he play for the Buffalo Bills, our hometown team here in Buffalo, but he also does a radio show on FoxSports.com every Sunday from 12 o'clock Eastern to 3 p.m. Eastern, so we're going to have Kirk talk about that. Also, for the first time, we're going to have two guests at once, uh, Bill Mauschi and Bob Dvorak, who have written a really cool book, Game Over, Jerry, De- Jerry Sandusky, Penn State, and the Culture of Silence. is going to join us later in the show. And Rob Pizzo, formerly of uh, Puck Daddy Radio and currently with The Score, is going to join us to continue a hockey conversation that Don, are gonna have later, Don and I are going to have later in the show. Don't forget about our new pro- project, uh, Cold Hard Football Facts and Football Nation present the Sportscasters. Uh, you can find that at www.footballnation.com. And our guest on that show this week is Dan Shanka from ourlads.com. Um, also on the show today, we're going to do the book club update. Uh, we're going to talk a little about NHL playoffs, and we're going to close the pick four. Um, but before we can get to any of that, let's do uh, three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> That highlight you heard off the top was a triple play, a very rare triple play. Uh, if you want to check it out, it was just search for Dodgers Padres triple play. You'll find it. And it was a very controversial two five six three triple play that uh, there seemed to be a lot of confusion about what the umpire was ruling. Some people thought he was ruling that it was a foul ball. Uh, he later on ends up throwing out Bud Black, Padres manager, for arguing about it, and the Dodgers end up winning that game 5-4. So just just a bizarre, bizarre play. First time that that's happened since 1998 uh, for the Dodgers. And but, probably that combination of... Well, yeah, I don't know when it was last time for that combination, but it was the first triple play for the Dodgers in, in quite some time. All right, uh, my first thing is we're going to kind of blow through three things today. Uh, the Giants, San Francisco Giants, had a really tough blow this week when they lost uh, Brian Wilson, their closer. He's out for the season. He's got some structural damage in his elbow. He's going to get Tommy John surgery. You know, Tommy John surgery is the it surgery in baseball. We've seen Steven Strasburg come back really strong this year. 
from Tommy John, so we hope the same for Wilson. But, you know, the Giants couldn't stay away from injuries last year, and uh, they're right back where they started this year. Is this like a Taco Bell-related curse, do you think? It could be. You know, you eat so many tacos, the next thing you know. All right, my second story this week, uh, being the good guy that he is, Michael Vick is taking a stand against animal cruelty, urging Alabama lawmakers to increase penalties for cockfighting. Apparently in Alabama they have weak $50 fines as the maximum penalty for cockfighting. Wow. So Michael Vick, he's been outspoken against animal cruelty since going into prison and serving his time. And, again, it's easy to play the negative spin on this that he's just doing it for positive publicity but either way it's a, the result is a net positive so good for michael vick and that is a pretty weak 50 dollars fine yeah it's time to, time to step that up for sure all right uh my second thing <laughs> disaster the university of alabama they shattered their thirty thousand dollar bcs trophy oops the other day uh, if anyone's seen the trophy, I always kind of cringe when the players and stuff are holding it on the stage because it looks very fragile. It's like a crystal football. And, uh, yeah, they had it on display at the mall, more athletic facility halls. Uh, it's where Nick Saban's office is. And, uh, Someone's father tripped on a rug. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's all there was to it, apparently. Shouldn't they have that, like, behind glass or something, maybe? You would think. But uh, I guess I don't. Green says... The trophy manager right. says it's pretty fragile, I guess. It only weighs about eight pounds, so I can see where if it gets bumped, it would roll off. <laughs> yeah, no no kidding. So I guess it's going to cost the state of Alabama $30,000 to replace their national championship trophy. Bummer. Uh, my last thing this week is a pretty funny story. We love the NHL playoffs for everything, the drama, the Stanley Cup, the trophy, everything. It's great. Uh, Todd Bertuzzi, who... Is an easy guy not to like, but he kind of have a funny scenario in the the Detroit Red Wings in between their in the hallway in between their dressing room and the visitors' dressing room in the Joe Louis Arena have a ping pong table where the players can play after practices or before games or whatever. Well, the Predators players wanted to use that table Monday on an off day during uh, their conference quarterfinal. Well, so to play a little ping pong. They wanted to play a little ping pong. According to Red Wings TV producer Will Posthumus, which is an odd last name, uh, quote, Todd Bertuzzi saw this and then told them, if you want to play, you need your own table. <laughs> Folded up the table and took it into the Wings locker room. <laughs> <laughs> what a dick. This is from the Puck Daddy blog, and this is the reason it's the best blog on the internet. Uh, Greg Wyshynski is a friend of ours, but still, it, just great stuff like this in there all the time. He goes on to say a defiant Shea Weber then slammed a ping pong ball with his paddle, turning it both into dust and then causing a sonic boom inside of Detroit. And then he said that that was kidding about that. But, yeah, Todd Bertuzzi said, uh, if you want to play ping pong, not on my table. That's awesome. I have kind of a funny uh, NFL story to finish off, or NHL story to finish off, too. Uh, you kind of knew this was coming when you seen that the Boston Bruins were going to be having to go to Washington to play a playoff <laughs> series. Uh, if you remember when the... Bruins were invited to Washington uh, to be honored by the president. Tim Thomas kind of oddly declined the invitation and took his ball and went home, so to speak, and (laughs) didn't show up. Well, inevitably, Game 3 of the series was in Washington yesterday, and Washington blogs and uh, fans rallied, and there was pictures everywhere, masks, posters of President Obama all around the arena, 
during warm-ups and during the TV broadcast, they were really visible, and uh, they had a good laugh at um, Thomas's expense, and I thought it was really funny, but Thomas got the last laugh he did. as uh, the Bruins ended up winning the game. He sure did. But you, you got to appreciate good-natured heckling like that. Yeah, for sure. All right. That's going to do it for three things. We kind of went a little quick there, Full show. but we have a great show for you today. A couple of things I want to mention is just don't forget to find us on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash sportscasters, uh, twitter.com slash sports underscore casters, uh, the sportscasters at gmail.com, um, and our website, www.sports-casters.com. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Kirk Morrison. Our next guest is from Oakland, California, and played his college football at San Diego State. He was a third-round pick of the Oakland Raiders in the 2005 NFL Draft and has recorded over 700 tackles and intercepted seven passes in his NFL career. Besides the Raiders, he has played for the Jaguars and last season with the Buffalo Bills. He also hosts a radio show on Fox Sports Radio each Saturday afternoon that is syndicated all over the country. A warm sportscaster's welcome to a true beast on the field, Kirk Morrison. How you doing, Kirk? Hey, I'm doing great, man. How you guys doing? Oh, we're doing great. We're in Buffalo. It's beautiful here. Uh, it's finally finally turned the corner. It's springtime. And uh, we're looking forward, as I'm sure you are, to getting this football season started. And uh, I kind of want to ask you, first thing, is what was your reaction? Uh, you were a free agent at the time yourself, but what was your reaction when you heard that the Bills were in the process of negotiating with Mario Williams? Well, I think you get excited as a player that you want to bring in, uh, you know, top talent in the NFL. I think Mario Williams presents that. I mean, you're not talking about bringing in top talent. You're bringing in the number one overall pick in the 2006 draft. Uh, that means a lot. That holds a lot of weight. And that's uh, star power. And I think that, uh, you know, when I heard that uh, negotiations were going down and he was going to take a visit to Buffalo, uh, you know, my thing was we can't let him out. You, know, you got to right. at least keep him in Buffalo. And I thought that, um, the whole organization did a great job in, in showing him uh, the vision of what I think uh, Buffalo Bill football can be in the year's future. And uh, definitely having him will uh, make the future a lot brighter, we hope. You know, one thing that we're not used to here in Buffalo is having the Bills be one of the teams that people talk about as having one of the best right. off-seasons. You know, the Bills have done a great job this year in improving the defense. I know my partner and I have been really vocal over the last couple of years, about how we didn't like the 3-4. seems like with Wanstat, they're going to go to the 4-3. You're going to be one of those linebackers with uh, Barnett and Merriman. Merriman. And the line is going to be great with the two ends that they brought in, and Anderson and, um, as we mentioned, Williams. What do you think about this defense? Does it have a chance to be one of the best defenses in the league this year? Well, I think you're just going to work to be the best. Uh, you never can say that. We can just be one of the best. I mean, we have to go out there and execute and get it right. Um, or, you know, when you have uh, the mini camps, OTAs, you know, we have a lot of time in jail at the defense. Um, we know how important it is to all, all be on the same page, especially when you switch to a new defense. You know, uh, more of a 4-3 style of defense, everybody has to be in the right situation, the right make, make plays. And I think that's what we're going to go through in this uh, off season and make sure that um, – have to just make sure we're all on the same page. There's no stone uh, left unturned, and I'm excited about that because I think guys are going to be in new situations. And but I think that guys can flourish. And I've been a, you know, I'm a big advocate of the four three. I kind of grew up in it, and 
high school and played in college and, you know, now playing in the uh, pro game um, for six years of my career. You know, I'm happy to finally be back and playing in that 4-3. What is kind of the learning curve going to be for a lot of the guys who played the 3-4 last year? Is it is it going to be a pretty easy transition? Like, in general, you said that you've played the 4-3 mostly, so it should be an easy transition for you. What about some of the guys that are around you? Do you think it'll be an easy learning curve, or do you think some guys will have have to take a while to get used to the new system? Well, I think the learning curve should be uh, should be pretty, not, not too bad. It shouldn't be too difficult. I think just because um, if you look at a lot of the snaps that we played last year on defense, uh, almost half of them, maybe a little more than half, were in a 4-3 sort of uh, schematic way, uh, I would say, because when you play teams like New England and you play uh, you know, the Jets a little bit, uh, you got a little bit from uh, Miami where they spread us out a little bit, tried to create mismatches. And we brought an extra safety on the field and, and took a, a, a corner, I mean, took a uh, linebacker out and we kind of primarily play 4-3 in our passing situations, which a lot of teams are kind of going through. And you saw that around the league. Guys are, you know, teams who are primarily 3-4, uh, especially even in our division. You kind of got to be more multiple than just a, a certain kind of defense. And I think playing the 4-3 uh, just shows that we've changed up just uh, from the 3-4 a little bit to kind of what's the trend of going throughout the NFL. You know, in a, about an hour or so, the NFL is going to release the schedule and we were talking a little bit before we talked to you about kind of what we look at when the schedule comes out. As a player, what, do you, what are you anxious to see about the schedule? What, what are you hoping is going to be a part of it? Like, is it hosting night games? Is it playing night games or national TV games in general? What is it you look for on the schedule that makes you excited as a player? I think one thing what you do always look at is the national TV games. You always want to see, you know, whenever, you know, the whole world can kind of get to see you play on that given day. That's always huge, uh, national TV games. But also, um, you always want to see when you play your division opponents. You always want to check out when's the bye week um, and, you know, see when you play in Toronto, you know, for the case of the Bills. So it's things like that so you can start to have an idea and, and map out your season right there in front of you, you know, and say, hey, for First four weeks, I want to do this. Next four weeks, I want to do this. And you kind of, you know, map out, you know, how you're, tra- you're going to train during the season, how you're going to eat during the season, you know, massages, chiropractic work, everything to get you through the season. And then know when you have a bye week where you can let the body rest. And, uh, you know, that's one thing that I've learned uh, throughout my uh, career so far is that you have to have a lot of structure during the season. It's not just go in and see what happens. It's, you know, have a plan going in, and you have little marks along the season that you check off and say, hey, you know, I'm maintaining my strength. Uh, my weight is where I want it to be at. Um, things like that. So, you, you know, I'm having time to make sure the body is still working properly because uh, it could be a long season. Do you have a preference of when the bye week falls as a player? Do you like it early, late, right in the middle? I think we are, everyone loves a late bye week. Uh, the late bye week always works out the best because – uh, you know when you're done with bye week, you know, the season is downhill. You know, everything's going uh going downhill, you know, not too many games left. Uh I've had I've had them all. I've had you know, I've had bye weeks in week three, you know, week two. So um those are a little bit harder because you have a long way to go without that rest period. But um, you know, one thing that I'm excited about and that I've had the experience is playing Thursday night games. So with every team being able to play in one Thursday night game this year, uh I think it's gonna be huge. 
it's going to be huge because uh, having a game like that is almost like another bye week because it's a quick turnaround, but after the game's over, you know, you get four or five days to rest. And I think throughout an NFL season, guys just want a couple days just to let the body rest. Because it's always, if you notice the teams in last year's Super Bowl, the teams that made it were two teams that, you know, seemed to be one of the healthiest at the end of the season. I know the Giants had a lot of injuries preseason and in the early part of the season, but the guys who played the majority of the year stayed healthy, which was huge for those guys. And same in New England. Uh, as for us in Buffalo, uh, you know, a lot of our key guys went down at different parts of the season, and, and you didn't really have that, uh, you know, that gelling factor that we had in the beginning of the season kind of went away because guys started to go uh, in, in spurts and in different parts of the season where we really needed them. You know, next week, Thursday, is going to be the draft and it's kind of cool the way the draft is set up now. You know, the first round is just that first day on Thursday night, and then they do the second and third round on Friday, and then the rest of it on Saturday. But when you were up for the draft in 2005, uh, you were a third-round pick, which was still a day-one pick then. Tell us a little right. bit about the time building up to the draft and kind of what's going through the undrafted players being waited to be drafted to mind right now, a week away. And then tell us a little bit about your experience on draft day and what it was like and how exciting it was to finally be drafted by probably really exciting, your hometown team of the Raiders. Well, uh, for me, um, you know, it's just a, it's the culmination of your college career. I mean, not even your college career. For me, it was my football career in general, you know, playing Pop Warner to high school, to college, and to, uh, once you get out of college, there's only one higher-ranking football uh, association in the world, and that's the NFL. That's where you, you want to be at. That's the number one. And, um, you know, when you get out of college and you, you just try to decide to turn pro, uh, everything, your dream's right there in front of you. You're just waiting for someone to answer that call, or actually we'll give you that call, let you know that we like what you, who you are, we like your, your, your talent, and we want you to be a part of our team. Uh, I think that's what guys are, are kind of waiting for right now. It's a lot of anxiety, you know, a lot of long days because, you know, it's every day. So you call your agent, you know, what are you hearing? What are you hearing? Oh, this team likes you, this team likes you. But you never know when the day of that draft comes. So I just think a lot of the anxiety that builds up, um, a lot of players are feeling it. You know, guys who are on the fringe of being a first-rounder or not. You know, there's a lot of guys who have first-round talent, but they may not fall to a team that, that needs them. And so they may slip to the second round. So, uh, so a lot of things that can happen on that first day. Uh, now you have the second day with the second and third round, you know, and I think that it, it's kind of helped out. It's made the draft a lot longer. Uh, but I think a lot of fans can really get a chance to see the players and really relate to them. And it's been a fun day. But as for my draft experience, um, you know, when you have three rounds all in one day, because on the first day pick in 2005, uh, the draft started about uh, on the West Coast at 9 a.m. Hmm. So, um, 9 a.m. on the West Coast, I was in a, with my family, and uh, I had to wait almost close to uh, 10 hours you know, wow. for it to be. So, it was kind of hard, you know, sitting around, you know, watching a lot of guys who you say, you know what, darn, man, I'm not, I think I'm a better football player than that person. But, you know, you, you go around, you saw teams who you thought you may go to, you had good meetings with, you had, um, you know, all this, uh, you know, different digits with, and you just had a really good feel, and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, they, they pick someone else. So, but, uh, you know, with the 78th uh, pick that year, the Oakland Raiders selected me, and, um, you know, I was excited because I knew I was going to a place where I can go out there and make an impact immediately. You know, sometimes guys are selected by teams 
and they're in a situation where they're, sometimes they're, it doesn't help them. You know, sometimes a, a team's vision is different than what you have going. But for me, I had a the vision of the kind of football player they had for me. You know, it really, really suited to my uh, my talent level, and I was able to start from day one and you know play you know every single start every single game in my career with the Oakland Raiders. So uh, that's you know my my draft story. Now, now that you're away from all that, that you've you've been drafted, you're in the league, you've established yourself. Are, are you what you call the draft fan? Will you watch every day of the draft or the first round? Or you know what? I really, I just kind of watch and see what our team does. You know, I, I watch a little bit of it just because uh, every time you watch the draft, it takes you back to that moment when you first got that phone call. So uh, I like to relive that moment a little bit with the guys and and, and watch them as they get drafted. You know, hug their families. You know the tears of joy. Uh, just like you said, you reach the highest, the highest, uh, the highest association, the highest league possible in the world of football. In the world of football, the NFL. You know there is no bigger league than that. It's not like oh, well, you get to the NFL, then the next draft you'll be a part of is is what? And there is no other draft. Right. This is the only one. And I think that when you watch those guys and you see that, you're like, man, I can't believe I made it and to still be playing now is. Is huge. So yeah, I watch it a little bit, and you always want to know how or who our team picked up. And, you know, definitely Buffalo has ten picks, so they're gonna pick up a lot of guys. There's gonna be a lot of guys on that roster come yeah. uh, come the, in the coming weeks. You know, as someone who's a veteran in the league now, what what do you what do you feel your role is, and how do you feel, how comfortable are you when with the rookies coming in, especially the guys on the defensive side of the ball, or even that play linebacker? Do you like to be a mentor to those guys, or do you prefer to kind of let them figure it out on your own? Kind of where do you where do you feel like your role is as a, a veteran player in the locker room? How do you mix with those new guys? I mean, just as, as a veteran player in general, just showing guys the game, telling them what the game is all about. Uh, you know, helping them any ways possible. It's not, I mean, the way I came into the game, I had guys who not necessarily helped me out. You know, luckily for me, I was just so thirsty for knowledge that I, I was a gym rat, you know, I was, a, I was a, a facility rat. I stayed around because I wanted to learn. I wanted to play as soon as possible. So um, I never wanted to be that guy. When I became an older veteran, I always wanted to make sure, hey, this guy's more talented than me or whatever it may be. I wanted to help them succeed because I get a lot of joy and kick out of that, seeing other players go out there and play that they, after taking some of the advice that I've given them. So you know, this league is always going to be new faces every single year. you got to think last year you had all the guys that were playing and you're going to have another you know, four to 500 guys enter the NFL this year, have a shot you know, from 220-some-odd draft picks to – uh, you know all the free agent signings. You know ten per team, so it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a lot of guys that you see around uh, the NFL and, and, and around our team. And I'm excited to to my for my role is to go out there and definitely compete for a starting job, and at the same time show guys how to play the game, how to go out and be a pro. And that just comes from off the field, on the field, and uh, how you live your everyday life. Sportscasters are here with Kirk Morrison, linebacker for the Buffalo Bills. A couple minutes left. You can follow Kirk on Twitter, a uh, really great Twitter feed. It's at Kirk Morrison, um, just as his name is, so it's easy to find. Um, you grew up in California. You played your college football at San Diego State. You got drafted by the Raiders. You went to Jacksonville for a minute, and you came to Buffalo. What was the culture sh- shock like coming to a, a cold-weather city like Buffalo, and how have you adjusted and then maybe as like a part B, uh, do you what do you like about Buffalo? 
Well, yeah, it was different for a California kid, you know, especially. Like I said, I spent uh, all that time in California and, you know, in the college, NFL. And then I got traded to Jacksonville, which pushed me out to the East Coast. Uh, but it was in Florida, so it was a little bit different. The weather was uh, was uh, very nice for all parts throughout the year. You know, it was still sunny. And then last year, being in Buffalo, was uh, it was it was different. I mean, I had the opportunity to pick where I wanted to go toward uh, the end of the draft, I mean, the end of the free agent process. And uh, Buffalo was my was my place. I, uh, just a, a lot of the guys who were on the team, I knew, and they told me, hey, this is a great place to play, but you have to get up here and see it yourself. And I said, well, you know, kind of give me your hobbies. He said, trust me, you'll, you'll love it. you got to get out here. And, um, you know, I took a lot of guys' word and kind of have time to really take a trip. So I just knew about when I went out there to, to play and things around it. And I just want to play football. So the best opportunity was going to Buffalo. And then, being once you got there, you saw the pride of the city, how much the, the people in the Buffalo Orchard Park area, they love their bills. Regardless of the record, they just want to be a part of it. And uh, I was excited just to, to have that opportunity to go out there and play and have fun, man. It, uh, that's the kind of recruiting tool I use now. It's just unless you're you're in Buffalo, you don't understand, you know, what it feels like to be out there. There, for what people say, there's not a lot to do. Well, I found a lot to do myself. You know, and it was more than just Buffalo wings. I tell you that, <laughs> but um, you know, just the, the people all around. You know, it was a great. Uh, great environment to be in. You know, I liked every bit of it. You know, I got a chance to stay on the Lake Erie. And, you know, for a hometown kid who's always around the ocean, it was different to be uh, on a part of a, a part of the country that I never really had uh, ever really been to. But it was a it was definitely a culture shock. But at the same time, I enjoyed every bit of it. Uh, you really feel at home when you make it to Buffalo. Last thing, Kirk, you know, you have a really interesting story being that not only do you play football, but you also are almost kind of getting the second phase of your life and your career started with this radio show that you have on Fox Sports right. Radio. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the show, kind of what you like about it, and uh, tell us a little bit more on you know where we can find it and things like that. Well, I mean, I've been a uh, radio broadcaster for the last uh, two years, so I know a lot about it. I've been you know deep, knee deep in it because I talk all sports. I'm not just a guy who. I love football, but one of, one of my releases is studying other games, other sports, basketball, baseball, soccer, you know, especially right now, hockey, because uh, of the playoffs. So this is something that's always been a passion of mine, and, uh, and and the show lets me express, you know, my opinions on, on how I feel and, and my knowledge of all those sports. So it, it definitely helped me out a lot. People actually say, oh, wow, I didn't know you were a radio host, and I heard your show, I liked it, or I didn't know you knew so much about other sports. And I said, yeah. You know, I get up and, you know, I'm I'm always looking at Yahoo Sports. I'm at Google Sports. I'm at ESPN. I'm at Fox Sports. I'm at, uh, you know, every little thing that you could think of, man. I'm at USA Today. I'm reading. I'm learning. I'm watching. You know, you come to my house, I have MLB Network, NFL Network, NBA TV, the Golf Channel, uh, NHL Channel. So it just gives me a release when I'm not working at football. I'm still... Um, watching other sports and just seeing how guys come together, how they, you know, how other teams are winning, organizations are winning, and it all comes back to uh, for me in football because you see how how a lot of teams that go out and win championships, you know, they have something in common that they believe in a system, they believe in a plan, and they all play for each other. And you see that in, in all sports. You know, last year's championship in the NBA was by the Dallas Mavericks. 
no one gave them a shot. You know, it's kind of like I bring that situation in the NBA to where we are in Buffalo. You know, not a lot of people don't give us a shot because of you know we're playing the division as the the Jets and the Patriots, and right. the Dolphins. So, you know, nobody's gonna give you a shot. But if you believe and you go out and play together and play for each other, you know, anything can happen. And especially, it's not a seven game series in the NFL. It's just one game. You've got to be your best for one day. And I think that uh, going forward, you know, having that mentality that to go out there and you be your best for one day, I think we can do that. And I think that's why going forward, um, you know, I, that's why I always bring other sports tied tie into my profession, which is uh, NFL football. So, again, it's Kirk Morrison on Twitter. You can follow him at Kirk Morrison. And uh, when and what day is the show on, buddy, on Fox Sports Radio? You said what? Uh, when, can, when is the show air on Fox Sports? Oh, you can listen to me, uh, Fox Sports Radio, on Sundays from noon – Eastern to 3 p.m. Eastern, so noon to 3 on the East Coast, Fox Sports Radio, me and Rob Dibble. We uh, we got a good little show, man, so we're going to keep you laughing. We keep it current, uh, and it's not just sports, you know. We, we also, you know, talk about things that we go through just as everyday people, so we have a good time. All right, Kirk, we thank you so much for doing this. We had a great time. Hope you enjoyed it as well, and we look forward to you getting back to Buffalo and uh, making a run at the Super Bowl this year with the Bills. Hey, always, and I appreciate you guys. Thank you. Thank you. All right, just want to kind of real quickly update the book club. First, I want to thank Kirk Morrison of the Buffalo Bills, Fox Sports Radio, for being with us. That was awesome. Um, just to update the book club, I'm just about finished with Titus's book. Not a lot to add after what I said last week about kind of the joke ratio and things like that. It's a good read. I, I've been, it's, it was a fun book to read. I'll put it that way. It's called Don't Put Me in Coach, My Incredible NCAA Journey from the End of the Bench to the End of the Bench. That's by Mark Titus. We're going to try to finish that one up first. Um, I'll probably try to get Titus on either the next show or the show after that. So if you're reading that one with us, uh, you know, kind of put a move on it. <laughs> um, the other book is uh, Hank Haney, The Big Miss, My Years Coaching Tiger Woods. And, um, you know, I've only read a bit of this. I had to read the Game Over book for the interview that we're going to do ne- gonna do next. Uh, so that kind of took some of my time, and I've been working on Don't Put Me in Coach. Uh, but The Big Miss is going to be kind of my next focus, and we'll probably finish that one probably about three weeks from now. So, again, it's the two books. Uh, dominating the book club book of the month this week. Don't put me in coach my incredible NCAA journey from the end of the bench to the end of the bench by Mark Titus. And um, the other book is my years coaching Tiger Woods, the big Miss by Hank Haney. All right, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to do something different, something we've never done on the show before. And that is we're going to have two guests at once. And the guests we're going to have are two authors, Bill Mauschi and Bob Dvorak, who have written a book called Game Over, Jerry Sandusky, Penn State, and the Culture of Silence. So let's find out about that. Let's take a break, and we'll be right back. Our next guests. Our next guests have had long careers writing for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. One is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated investigative journalist, and the other has received awards from the American Society of Newspaper Editors and the Golden Quill Awards Program for Deadline Reporting and Sports Writing. 
Today, the book that they co-authored, Game Over, Jerry Sandusky, Penn State, and the Culture of Silence, hits the shelves in bookstores across the country. A warm sportscaster is welcome to the very talented Bill Moshi and Bob Dvorak. Did I get those right? Yeah, Moshi, right. I'm Moshi. Moshi. Okay, sorry. I'll, I'll blame it on the Western New York accent. <laughs> How are you guys doing today? Great. Uh, good, good to be here. Exciting day, I imagine, to finally have uh, the book out there for for um, everyone to read. Let's kind of let's kind of start, I guess, uh, in uh, in November. I guess it was November sixth of last year. Uh, what was your guys' immediate reaction um, when you heard? And when did you get to the point where you guys decided that you were going to do this book? Well, I think the immediate reaction of anybody when uh, when the news flashed uh, on the TV screen that Jerry Sandusky had been arrested and what the nature of the allegations were, um, I think it was like everybody else. It was shock and disbelief. You'd say, my God, how could, how could this be happening to him? How could this be happening to Penn State? Um, and uh, how long, how, how has this been a lot allowed to go on for as long as it did? And I think um, as, uh, as journalists, uh, we both recognize the uh, elements of a story that, uh, uh, and that anything with this many layers deserved to be uh, deserved to have a, a a real close look taking at it. Okay, when when did you guys decide ultimately that you would do this project together? And and what what did you do initially to to begin the reporting? Did you guys get out there right away? Did you guys meet up there and decide to do it, or what, when did the idea for the book come along? Well, we we uh, were paying close attention to it, and then right around Thanksgiving is when uh, the book came together, and that's when we hit the road. Uh, and um, you know, a lot of people closed doors on us, a lot of people thumbed their noses at us, and they continue to do that. But uh, the bottom line was, is we ended up getting through to over a hundred people that talked about not only the culture of silence at Penn State, but also these horrible. Uh, charges that uh, were filed against Mr. Sandusky, and uh, then we uh, once we hooked up uh, together because we'd worked together at the Post Gazette for years. Once we got it going, it was uh, 24/7 from uh, that point forward till we finished it on right around February 1st. Did you guys have any, have experiences with the culture of silence there before this scandal? Like, is this something that had frustrated you guys, um, maybe in your covering of Penn State for the Pittsburgh Post Gazette over the years? Uh, well, not always with the with the Pittsburgh Post Gazette. Uh, my first two years of college were at Penn State, uh, and uh, I've uh, I, I was at the uh, 1983 Sugar Bowl when they won the uh, first national championship. And um, I think anybody that had dealings with Penn State is, runs up against this wall that you know they do the things their way. And I don't think they're unique in that regard. Is that uh, you have to do it uh, their way or or if you don't like it, uh, you know, go cover at Temple University or something. Um, so I was aware of the culture. I was also, um, I, I think, what game over shows is just how isolated Penn State is. And it's in the middle of a valley, in the middle of the state, in the middle of nowhere. Uh, uh, this isolation is one of its charms, but um, isolation is also one of the things that uh, contributed to this story. And from my perspective, yeah. uh, Penn State has always had uh, a situation where they did not want to reveal records and other things, and they fought for years to keep themselves out from under the uh, 
the open records laws in Pennsylvania called the Pennsylvania Right to Know Act, and they've been caught several times not abiding by open meetings laws and a variety of other things that they basically had the attitude uh, was, uh, you'll get to know what I tell you, and that is it. And uh, you get in these situations where everything's self-contained. Like Bob said, sometimes bad things happen. And it's a, what our book is is a cautionary tale to all universities, and you got one right up the road that's had a similar right. uh, problem. And, you know, it's a cautionary tale that when you think too much about yourself and it's all self uh, and aggrandizement, uh, sometimes uh, bad things happen. You know, one of the early chapters in the book is called The First Clues, and you talk a little bit about some of the stuff that happened all the way back to May of 1998. And I wonder, in your guys' coverings and dealings, you know, long before this book, and maybe just in general, why do you think it took so long for kind of the the scandal to break if there was clues as far back as 1998? And maybe that, you know, maybe that's the ultimate question in all of this. Uh, that's very well. Yeah, go ahead, Bob. Well, I, I think if you were to draw up on a blackboard the blueprint for the ultimate pedophile, uh, you, know, you need a disguise because they operate in this, uh, under a cloak of secrecy. And you know, t- For example, just take a sports icon, a sports legend who is the founder of a charity recognized by George Bush as one of his thousand points of light. Uh, he's the male Mother Teresa of Central Pennsylvania, and everybody considers him to be a, uh, just this great guy, a big overgrown kid. Well, and the, re- and the look at the allegations paints a completely different picture. So I think there was a, uh, a sense that, hey, it, it can't happen to us because it, we're the good guys. And uh, there was a, uh, a tendency just to avoid the subject uh, altogether at the start uh, in order to protect the reputation of the university. And, you know, like, in 98, uh, there was a substantial investigation done in 98, and uh, Gary Schultz, who was uh, who's under charges of perjury, was in charge of uh, the uh, police department, and uh, he testified before the grand jury that when he heard these charges and when he read the reports, he thought there was nothing to them, and that... Um, Jerry, Sand, uh, Jerry Sandusky was simply playing around naked with a young child fooling around in horseplay in a shower. Uh, and when people look at that on the hard, cold um, paper or listen to it, uh, as I did in the preliminary hearing for uh, him, uh, you basically uh, shake your head. Uh, uh, that Almost as much as when... Uh, Sandusky's lawyer uh, later uh, suggested that the simple idea of a grown man uh, showering naked with an uh, unrelated child is not a crime. Uh, and when he said that, uh, there were probably 200 reporters at that non-preliminary hearing on December 6th. And everybody, I was around, turned around, looked at each other, and we're going, what? <laughs> uh, and, you know, I think it's human nature. There's a tendency that we don't want our our, our heroes, our our sports figures, uh, whatever it is, to be uh, tainted by anything. But you know, that's not how life works. What could Joe Paterno have done differently? You know, um, ultimately the university decided to release him, and it was you know kind of sad. And then you know he ended up passing away. But 
what could he? Have, what would have been the right thing for him to do? Maybe that's a little bit too judgmental, but how could this have played out better for Joe? What, what did he? What were his mistakes, and how could he have improved them? Well, you know, no coach has ever been more exalted than Joe Paterno, and for good reasons. But no coach has ever fallen so far so fast. It, it's a tragedy of Shakespearean proportions. Um, uh, Joe met the legal requirements in reporting what he knew to his nominal superiors, and yet um, so many people have said he failed in his moral obligation. Um, we go by uh, one, of the, one of Joe's own statements, is, with the benefit of si- hindsight, I wish I would have done more. Uh, and that's the, the one thing that haunts us uh, uh, to this day, because uh, those are secrets that Joe took to the grave with him. Um, but if he would have had... Uh, if somebody puts their foot down in either 1998 or 2002 when a second incident is investigated, uh, and they came forward with it, sure they would have taken uh, they would have taken a big PR PR hit at the time, but it wouldn't have festered like it did in secrecy for all this time. Anything to add, Bill? Well, I mean, the the uh, I'm sure uh, you know. When you read Game Over, you'll see that uh, we created this situation where Joe, like Bob said, had uh, all-encompassing uh, power at that university. And had he taken an aggressive approach in 2002, uh, and we're giving him the benefit of the doubt that four years earlier he didn't know or didn't have specific knowledge of the other 95-page uh, police report, but in 2002, if he would have, I mean, when you look at the timeline, this guy, uh, Mike McQuarrie, made a report, and it was almost two weeks later before anybody did anything at the university. Uh, that's, uh, you know, when I think back, uh, I try to measure things against my own life, and uh, you'd think that you'd do something sooner than two weeks or nine days or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, uh, I think Joe could have put his foot down on that moment especially in 2002, and um, this thing would have come out. It would have been spun out a lot differently. And frankly, had they just done what was the right thing to do, put it through the prosecutorial channels, then they were doing the right thing. But instead, that's not what happened. And it didn't happen with the charity either. You know, around the time that this story broke, we had uh, we had a guy on the, on the podcast. I think you know, it was his name is Zach Rosenfield, and he used to work for AccuScore. He's out of the business now. He's in PR. But he came on and he talked to us about, you know, his views on this. And he was so passionate that regardless of anything else that Joe Paterno had done in his career at Penn State, all the things that led to a seven-foot statue um, being built on campus, what could – what what happens now? Like what is his legacy? Is it forever tainted by this? Can there be any – can you can you can you say anything good about Joe Paterno anymore? I mean, it's it seems so sad to say that, but it seems like no matter what you say, good, someone's going to be there to to pounce on you and say, "How could you say that?" He's a guy who supported child molesters. Well, I think that you know tragedies do not happen to small people, uh, to minor people, and every tragic uh, figure uh, has uh, some sympathetic qualities about him. Sure. Uh, you know, you you have to see say that Joe was the most successful college coach coach of all time based on number of wins. You talk about his grand experiment and how uh, his ex players uh, uh, will say and and will continue to say that he was not only coaching them as football players, he was preparing them for life. Yet that has to be balanced against this one 
uh, tragic flaw, this one lapse of judgment or this one sin of omission. And I think you, you saw some of it uh, in uh, every uh, uh, story, every obituary that was written about him. He said, Joe Paterno was this, but yet he failed to do this one thing. That's what's so mind-boggling about the tragedy. Bill? Yeah, and I couldn't add much more to that. Uh, you know, the the um, the man tried to make amends on the front porch of his house when he uh, talked about the various things that had happened to him. He basically um, prayed for the, asked the kids, asked everybody there to pray for the victims, and, um, you know, he said it all himself. I wish I would have done more. You know, we, we also had someone on the show who said that they think that the best thing that Penn State could do is just take a year off from football, regroup. <laughs> we know that that you know is is not going to happen. But what do you think the fall? Um, what's the fall going to bring for Penn State and Penn State football? Well, I think with the change of attitude in the uh, in the way the university is run, where they promise to be more transparent and more open, and and uh, to break down this wall of silence is is one thing. But I think with the fresh start by Bill O'Brien. Sure. They, hey, look, they took some recruiting hits because of all this. There's no denying that. But I think with a fresh start by Bill O'Brien, it might take until football season starts to kind of uh, uh, clear the air and allow uh, this uh, prestigious university to uh, start rebuilding the trust that uh, that was lost during this uh, episode. You know, we talked to uh, one last little name drop here. We talked to Tom Verducci, who's a uh, a famous alum of Penn State, and he said, you know, the thing that frustrated him the most is he has his son that's there right now, and he felt so bad that kind of the college experience for his son and the other students on campus has been hurt so bad by this. What's the healing like on campus for the student body, and how do you think they'll react when the season starts again this this fall? Well, that's another great question, and I think that's a very individual answer for all those involved, and you know, one of the one of the un, uh, uh, unsung victims in in this uh, whole story is uh, you know the soul of Penn State itself. You mentioned Tom Verducci. There were some incredibly uh, successful alumni who who came out of there and you know owe everything they have to that university. And and myself, I went to I went to school there my first two years. So you know, it's, it's a very painful and personal thing to have to uh, come to grips with. But before you can correct the problem. You have to admit you have one. Uh, then when, it, when you admit you have one and you can take the steps to uh, uh, correct that, then the healing process can begin. Uh, it's going to take time. I, you know, I don't think it takes one football season or uh, you know, just a trial or whatever it is. It's going to take some time for these wounds to heal because the wound was so deep. Anything to add, Bill? And, you know, and it's good that they're opening the culture up. Uh, time will tell uh, how much they open it up, but uh, it's very good that they're doing that. And um, I think they finally realize that what they've always thought about living in Happy Valley and the Penn State mystique is not exactly a healthy environment uh, and that uh, they need to open things up if they want to uh, come back to uh, life. This might be an impossible question to answer because the answer might be so far in the future, but I just wonder what your guys' opinion is. Do you think Penn State can be a football power again? Can, they, can Penn State be a place 
that can represent the Big Ten and play for the crystal ball that smashed in Alabama the other day? You know, can this be a team that can can compete again for national championships in the post Joe Paterno era? Well, I don't think uh, any wound as deep as it is isn't necessarily fatal. Uh, I, I think if they uh, go back to the ideals that made them successful in the first place, that you can uh, be competitive on the athletic field and successful in the um, in the classroom, I mean, that hasn't changed. That ideal hasn't changed. I, I think one of the things what Game Over does is point out the isolation of Penn State uh, in the middle of the valley, in the middle of the state, in the middle of nowhere, uh, and you create your own little world up there, your own little island, that maybe you've got to open that up a little bit uh, because that's one of the things that contributed to what happened. What do you think, Bill? Um, I, could, I agree wholeheartedly with Bob on that whole thing. And, and you know, they hired, they're spending a tremendous amount of money. They hired PR people. They hired Louis Free, the former FBI director, to... Um, uh, go through their entire process, and, it, and they found a bunch of holes in the uh, situation of compliance and, and making sure that people uh, that see things have uh, uh, the courage to come forward without having to worry about somebody firing them or something like that. And it's uh, from that perspective, it's going to be good things up, up there. Well, you, but, you know, you, well, you, put, you, played, you played the fight song, and, uh, you know, their Penn State alma mater, one of the verses is, one of the lyrics is, may no act of ours bring shame. Uh, and it's as simple as living up to that ideal. If, if you really believe that, you've got to live up to it, no matter the consequences. All right, the book is called Game Over, Jerry Sandusky, Penn State, and the Culture of Silence. Uh, Bill is on Twitter. You can find him at B-M-O-U-S-H-E-Y. Bob, you're not there, are you? Not yet. No. Not, not yet. Okay, so we got to keep looking. I'm sure Bill will let us know when Bob joins Twitter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to hook him up here in the next couple of days. <laughs> the book is on bookshelves everywhere, and I assume, is it available in e-formats as well? Can you get it on like, yeah, iTunes? Yeah, it's, uh, and... it's available in every format. Oh, that's great. What do, you guys, what do you guys think of... Uh, of the e-formats and reading the book on the iPad and things like that. It's both my kids future. love it. My kid, both my kids bought it that way. So awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a way of the future. You can't fight it. Uh, you know, you go with the flow or you get left behind. Uh, it's uh, if, if it's convenient for you and travelers and commuters and uh, the new generation and uh, uh, God bless them as long as they keep reading. Well, this you know I've I've said before I love it. I love reading it that way. But I don't know how many authors I can have sign my iPad. You know what I mean? That's, uh, that's the only bad thing about it. Because I love to get you know the book signed and you put it on the shelf and that's great. But it, you know the iPad screen might get a little cluttered with all those signatures if I read too much. But this was a great, unique experience. We really appreciate it. I know today's a super busy day for you guys with the book coming out, and we really appreciate you making the sportscasters a part of it. Like I said, the book's called Game Over: Jerry Sandusky, Penn State, and the Culture of Silence. For more information. Follow Bill on Twitter at B-M-O-U-S-H-E-Y, and Bill's going to tell us when he hooks up Bob in a couple days. Uh, Thanks so much, guys. really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Okay. Talk to you later. Thanks for having us. All right. We have to thank... Bill Mauschi and Bob Dvorak for being on the podcast today. Uh, that was the first time for us to have 
three different voices going on there, the two guys over on the one end and Don and I on the other end, and uh, I really enjoyed that and liked it. And, I, you know, I encourage you to check out the book. Again, it's called Game Over, Jerry Sadusky, Penn State, and the Culture of Silence. All right, moving on, let's talk a little bit about the NHL playoffs, Don. I wanted to do about 10 or 15 minutes uh, before we bring in our hockey guest this week, Rob Pizzo, just kind of talk about what we've seen. And I guess the first thing I want to start with as far as asking you is what you have kind of thought about the style of play, which seems to go against most most of the cliches as to what people expect from playoff hockey. It's been a lot chippier, a lot dirtier, and a lot more fighting than we're used to in the playoffs. Yeah, I was going to uh, – Shea Weber kind of set the tone for this in the in game one, I believe. Uh, the Nashville – was a win, too. The win, yep. They won over the game the over the wings, and he drove uh, – I'm drawing a blank. Zetterberg's head into the boards. Now – I'm going to real quickly compare this to Tyler Myers. I know this is a homer thing to do, but Myers got a three-game suspension for what was a dirty hit. Weber's hit was also a dirty hit. Myers was from behind. Weber was was from behind. Myers, you could at least argue, was a was a check. It was a hockey play. Weber's was more along the line of like a wrestling move. It was clearly a punch or a push from behind. Uh, Myers was close to the play. Like, I mean, the puck was there. Uh, Weber in his case, was away from the play. The, the game was over. It was an WWE-style bashing right. of the head into the boards. Meyer's intention was at least arguable. Uh, Weber, there's no doubt about what his intention was. I can't believe they let him off the hook. You're right. It did set the tone for the Gomez, whole playoffs. Right. Gomez was injured. I think that's the bottom line here is Gomez didn't play, I don't think, the rest of that game. And Shanahan has put an em- emphasis on injuries. It seems like if a player gets injured – you're more likely to be suspended. If the player gets up and walk, walks away, you're less likely to be suspended. Right. So getting back to your initial question about the style of play, um, I'm torn because on the one hand, that Penguins game three, Penguins uh, Flyers game three. Right. It was a bit of a mess. Super entertaining. Right. From like a spectator's point of view. But it's entertaining because it's a sideshow. Uh, nothing that has happened in that series is going to be remembered so far for the play on the ice. Uh James Neal scored a beautiful goal in that game, and he's going to be better remembered for the two really dirty plays he had. And the best player in the league, Sid Crosby, is going to be best remembered for a post-game press conference and pushing a guy's glove away. Um, So, again, like I said, I was glued to my TV that game. I didn't want to get up until it went to a commercial. But my favorite game right now has been reduced to who's going to do what dirty play. And... What's You'd like to see response? it back off a little bit and get back to hockey a little bit. You know, like I'm okay with the chippy stuff and I like the passion and everything like that. But I do want to, if I still, if I were to mention my top five moments of the playoffs, it'd all be the overtimes, you know, and the overtimes I've seen and the hockey and the goals. Right. You know, I'm not a big fighting guy anyway. You know, some hockey fans, they love that part of it. And that's just never been the part I loved. I love to see the skill and the goals. And, you know, the thing that I'll take away from this Philadelphia-Pittsburgh series is going to be the emergence of Claude Giroux and really yeah. him going from a really good player to an absolute top five superstar in the league. I mean, the guy has stared down what we thought were the two best players in the league and outplayed them yeah. you know, by a mile. I mean, he's been incredible. you know. And I was at a game this season, and I'll talk about this with Pizzo, where the Sabres were beating the Flyers 3 to nothing, and then Claude Giroux happened. You know, and I walked out because Claude Drew had scored a goal and breakaway in overtime, and we lost. You know, I mean, that guy is so unbelievable. Another question for you: Are you more surprised that Pittsburgh is losing three to nothing, or that Vancouver is losing three to nothing in the series? I think it's got to be Pittsburgh. 
we even talked about, and I think you put it really well, is if if Vancouver loses game one, watch out because they're going to be under a microscope. They're yep. kind of the most hated team in Canada outside of Vancouver. So everyone's just waiting to rip on this team and waiting for the wheels to fall off. Uh, and the Kings are a little bit of a sleeping giant, which I know is easy to say now, but they had like a real average regular season. But if you look at their roster, score. it's not an average roster. Right. Um, and Quick and, is uh, unbelievable. Yeah, he's played great. So what <laughs> you could talk about how Giroux happened to that series. You could say Duncan Keith happened to the Vancouver series. Daniel oh, Sabine right. yep. hasn't been – I mean, what did he get, a five game? This goes back to poor suspensions again. He got right. five regular season games off, and that might cost Vancouver their season. Right, a, a President's Trophy season down the drain because, yeah. you know – but, again – People have said this about Crosby, where he really needs to stay out of the scrums and things like that. You could argue, you know, that Keith or that you know Sedin kind of started that thing with Keith. Sure. I mean, it's, it's no excuse. Duncan Keith shouldn't have done, did what he did. But if Sedin just never goes there, that never happens. But right, and it seems like Vancouver's done because you got to think that Quick's going to be able to win one more game out of the sure. last. Yeah, you know, I, don't, four. I don't. I don't see either team coming back. And, and neither do I. You. You talk about like how playoffs aren't usually involved with the fighting and stuff, but there usually is the chippiness and mm-hmm. uh, all that type of thing. And I don't necessarily mind what Crosby's doing. I don't mind the pushing the glove. He hasn't really been dirty, per se. He's waited till refs kind of got in between him to throw punches, which is a little bit dirty, but he shouldn't be in there anyway. I mean, the refs are clearly protecting him from himself at this point. They're breaking up fights because they know who he's got a concussion history. He really shouldn't be in there fighting. What he's got to be doing is scoring more to bring his team back. But, again, I don't mind what he's doing. It's the, it's the overly dirty stuff. I, I expect the chippiness and the stuff after the whistle and all that type of thing, but it's the Aaron Asham plays, the James Neal plays. The, the Yeah, James Neal was out there at the end of the game just looking to try to injure one of the guys who scored the hat-tricks. Yeah, I think he should be done for the series, minimally. Uh, that was ugly. The James Neal stuff was ugly. I thought the second ugliest thing was the Karkner play. Right. He got like seven punches in on a guy that wasn't Didn't ready want to, to fight. fight. Right. And he got a one-game suspension. Haglin, they kind of got right, I guess, three games. But there was some whispers that uh, Ottawa may have lied about a concussion and to because they know that he'll suspend players longer if right. they're hurt. Wow. I didn't hear that. That's well, crazy. They they came out the next day saying there was a concussion. And then he played the next game. Right. So uh, he quick recovery, all the tasks, right. quick recovery, and you know what? If that's what they did, I applaud them for it, uh, because Shanahan has has made this a joke. It shouldn't just be about injuries, and you're you're going to see teams doing that a lot. If if he's got to come up with these decisions in one day because they play the next day, teams are going to say, "Yeah, I, he he's got a concussion. He's going to have to pass the test," and the next day he does. But you know, we're going to talk with Pizzo about this later. But I don't know if it's maybe another theme you noticed on. But as much as things change in the game they stay the same because it's always been about goaltending in the playoffs. And it seems like it is so much so this year. Yeah. I mean, we could go from series to series. I mean, clearly Jonathan quick is outplaying either of the goalies in Vancouver. Sure. You know, you have the two goalies in St. Louis who have both played and both played pretty well. You know, Mike Smith has been the better goalie. And when he got injured or banged up, that's when Chicago was able to get a game. Yeah. Pekka Rene 
the better goalie in that series. Yeah, the only Henry series- Lundqvist absolutely stole the show last night yeah, 40 saves in New Jersey. The only one where goaltending really hasn't been an issue is this Devils-Florida series, but you still think that Brodeur in the end is probably going to be the reason they win that series. Well, the series I was going to bring up actually is the Boston-Washington series because I thought Holpe's played really, really well. Surprisingly, they get, they're playing their third stringer against the Vesna winner. Right. And in the first two games... He deserved better in game one. He yes, gave up he did. no goals until overtime and lost, and then he gave up one goal in game two. You know two what I think is Washington got a really sloppy game from Thomas yesterday, and they didn't take advantage of it. Yeah. You know, they they lost that game 4-3, to three, and they're going to regret that because— And they woke up Boston a little bit at the end of the game. They should have probably not got into those pushing matches. I mean, sure, you got right, Lucic to Cheech. take a couple penalties right. and stuff like that, but in the end, you lost, and you got beat up a little bit, so— so, well, I, just about everyone's cup pick going into this was Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh and Vancouver, right? I mean, that was like almost a unanimous pick. Sure. So what do you got now? Because that's probably out the window. I I guess it would be easy to say the Flyers because of how well they're playing. Right. But I guess that's not a big shock that they're scoring a lot of goals because they were the second leading scoring team in the league before that. Um Man, it's it's tough to call that right now. I guess I would say Philly and maybe, geez, all this all the West series other than the LA series is still real, real close. Right. Yeah, it's uh, not an easy question to answer. I think if I was forced to, I'd pick Philly and LA right now. The two because, teams that are the biggest surprise. Yeah, I just feel like LA is just kind of doing what we thought. You know, they were my Stanley Cup pick before the season. Yeah, out of the West. I picked the Sabres and the Kings, and both teams made me look silly during the regular season, but the Kings got in, and it was almost like that's – a lot of people thought that with the Sabres too. If the Sabres could get in, they could maybe be what we thought they would be. They kind of ran out of gas, so I don't know if it would have worked for them, but it seems like it's working for the Kings. They're getting healthy. You know, Richards is scoring. What's interesting about that whole series as a juxtaposition to the pittsburgh Philly series is Philly – was kind of applauded for getting rid of Carter and Richards, who are kind of dead weight there. Uh, Richards was seen as a little bit of a baby by the media. And now they go to L.A., and they're surprising the, they're surprising the hockey world by really beating Vancouver pretty soundly in that series. Right, and Richards, I mean, is, was a star of the one game that they won. Um, one thing I'm going to point out, if the Rangers, Bruins, Devils, and Philadelphia win their series, we're going to have an absolutely epic second round in the Eastern Conference. You'd have the Rangers versus the Devils, which is a great rivalry. And if there's any team you want to see the Devils play in the playoffs, it's probably the Rangers. If, you if think, you're a Devils fan? If you're any fan. Oh, okay. If you're just a fan in general. You know, you'd rather just see the Devils go away in a lot of cases. But if they're going to be in there, what a great series to have them play against the Rangers. They're super close. It's a great rivalry. The great seven-game series in 94. Now, the other one would be Boston and Philadelphia, which I think would be really good too sure so it's really playing out great let's take a break let's see what what rob pizzo has to say um about things so uh, let's take a break we'll be right back with rob pizzo from the score our next guest is from toronto ontario and is the former co-host of Puck Daddy Radio with our good buddy Greg Wyshynski. He currently works for The Score Radio and is kind enough to make some time for us today to chat about the NHL playoffs. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the awesome Rob Pizzo. How are you doing today, Rob? Not bad, dude. 
We're doing really good. I mean, we're pretty pumped up about hockey right now. I mean, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I couldn't even find a chance to take a breath this weekend. It's like I always thought about, all right, maybe I won't watch the next game, but it was just I don't I can't remember another weekend like that. And I, I don't even have a team in the fight because the Sabres went out, you know, finishing ninth in the East. And it's just it's the best playoffs so far that I can remember. And that's with two three O's already, too. Yeah, it's certainly the most interesting playoffs and, and definitely the most talked about playoffs in a long, long time. I know a lot of people obviously are talking about Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and everything that's gone on there with the brawls and Crosby and the very fact that they're down three games to nothing is a big story there. But, I mean, you've got Vancouver struggling. You've got brawls in three or four different series. Um, I don't remember this many fights and this many questionable hits in any playoff, like entire playoff, let alone the first four games uh, that we've seen this year. So you're right. It's, we haven't had a chance to catch our breath, but that's, that's pretty cool. I don't mind it. You know, the, the kind of the old cliche that we always go by, and I've always thought it maybe wasn't true, and I guess we're blowing it out of the water this year, is that there isn't fights in the playoffs. And I, yeah. I think we're kind of leaving that cliche for death, huh? There's usually one series that kind of has two teams that genuinely don't like each other, and you'll see some fights. And I think everybody thought that was going to be Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. We know they don't like each other. It was pretty damn evident in the second last game of the season. They don't like each other. Uh, so we knew this was going to happen. And the funny thing about that series, the first two games, they played nice. I mean, we didn't see too much. It wasn't until they went to Philadelphia. Shocker right there. They go to Philadelphia, and, and all hell breaks loose. But, I mean, who knew that Ottawa and New York hated each other as much as they do? Who knew that San Jose and you know San Jose and uh, St. Louis couldn't stand each other? This has just been weird. I got to be honest with you; it's just been really weird. And like I said, Brendan Shanahan's been extremely busy. Um, you know, reviewing so many things, giving out ridiculous uh, suspensions or non-suspensions. I mean, I have not been a fan of what he's done in the playoffs, but we've had something to talk about each and every day. Have you been surprised at how well the road teams have done? I think they're 14 of 22 so far in the playoffs. Not too surprised. I mean, I know a lot of people firmly believe that home ice advantage is overrated. I'm not one of those people. Uh, I don't think the first few games of a series is where home ice advantage uh, is really evident. I think it, when it comes down to Game 7, if you've got to play Game 7 on the road, that's very, very difficult. So the rest, though, I mean, especially the way nowadays players the way they travel, everything they have, you know, at their disposal. Traveling for NHLers is not like you or me traveling. Right. Okay. They've got private planes, got everything they want on that plane. They can, you know, they, they don't wait. They don't do anything. They jump on a plane right pretty much from the rink and they're home in their beds, you know, hours later. So the whole issue of traveling is not like in the 70s where players used to actually fly commercial like the rest of us. That doesn't happen anymore. So I'm not that surprised. I just think in Game 7, going into another rank, that's where it becomes more difficult. You know, another thing that I've noticed, I've noticed the fights, I've noticed the road teams. I noticed there's been a ton of overtime. We've had at least yeah. one double overtime. And it just goes to show how close this league is. I mean, part of us maybe thinks that because of the three-point games, the league has gotten close. And that's true, but it's also gotten close because it's just close, right? It is and it isn't. Uh, the three-point game really does it, and the charity point, like specifically, just uh, has made has created this illusion that certain teams are as good as other teams when they flat out aren't. Um, and I know some people will will say, "Hey, well, that's what makes the playoff races at the end of the season that much better." I'm I'm more of a 
fan of the better teams are the better teams, and they, they prove that they are. Um, but parity is evident in some you know capacity in the NHL. There are more good teams now than there ever were. Uh, I mean, growing up, there were three or four teams usually that were on top of the list, and the rest of the teams were chasing them. It doesn't work out that like that anymore, but I still think that charity point gives the illusion that a ninth or tenth place team is a really, really good team when in a lot of instances they're not. What surprises you more? Now, here's the thing. Before the playoffs, just about everywhere I looked, Pittsburgh, Vancouver, Pittsburgh, Vancouver, Pittsburgh, Vancouver, everyone was picking it. Yeah. And they're both down 3-0, so the chances of Pittsburgh, Vancouver is really slim at this point. Does either one surprise you more than the other? I mean, Philadelphia, we knew, could beat Pittsburgh, but are you really shocked that LA is doing as well against Vancouver as they are? Funny, I, I got the complete opposite of really? you. Really? Um, yeah, I think Vancouver's depth is unreal, and when they are going, they are the best team in hockey. Uh, and they've got a pretty damn good goaltender to go with it. But then again, they've got two goaltenders, and that might be the issue right there. But I am shocked that Pittsburgh is down three games to nothing. That team is so, so good. They've got everything you need from, you know, Marc-Andre Fleury plays great in the regular season, is doing nothing in the playoffs, and has looked very, very terrible doing it. I mean, the, the blue line with Latang, Malkin, the leading scorer in the NHL, and then Crosby comes back. It almost seemed unfair when Crosby came back that the best team in the world you know, got the best player in the world back in the lineup. That one to me is is more shocking because I just believe there's no there's no area in which Philadelphia is better than Pittsburgh on paper. I'm obviously being proven wrong with this series, but on paper, I think Pittsburgh's got better goaltending, better defense, better offense, better everything, and they're somehow getting manhandled in this series. The reason I'm not as shocked as Vancouver is because we all knew that Jonathan Quick could steal games and Jonathan Quick could win a series. Right. I, I truly believe he can. I believe he is a goaltender who's had a very rough year, not because he's played badly, but because he's just been hung out to dry so many times. I mean, the guy had, I believe, five one nothing losses this year. How do you allow a goal and have that many losses? It's just unfair, and his team just hasn't been able to put the puck in the net. Um, so I think the Pittsburgh one, at least for me, is a lot more shocking. You know, I was at a game in Buffalo this year, and the Sabres got a 3 nothing lead on the Flyers, and then Claude Giroux happened, and before I knew it, he had scored on a breakaway in overtime, and I was walking out pissed. Yeah. You know, and it just seems like this guy, more than any other player this year, has really stepped up from a very good player to just an out-of-this-world elite superstar in the league. Um, do you agree or disagree with that? With Claude Giroux? Sorry, yeah. you kind of cut there a second. You yeah. Claude Giroux? Yeah. Yeah, he's been he's been elite all year. I mean, he but it, it really was this year where he stepped up in a way that made everybody notice. Last year, I was hearing a lot of people pumping his tires, and I remember thinking, well, yeah, he's a good player, but don't put him in that top five area just yet. He's there right now. He is phenomenal. And the thing about this uh, Flyers team that we've seen in the first round is they always believe they can come back. It doesn't matter what the score is. It doesn't matter what's the situation. They always believe they can come back. And the confidence in this kid, Giroux looks as if he's played in the NHL for 10 years. And he hasn't, obviously. He's just got confidence. He's got poise. He's got ability like few others do in the NHL. And I truly believe he's a superstar right now. You know, another series that's been really interesting to me is Boston and Washington. I mean, those games, that you couldn't play them closer. First two went to overtime, and the game last night was 
you know, essentially an overtime goal. Boston got a really late goal to yeah. avoid overtime. What's going to be the difference ultimately in this series? Is it going to be Tim Thomas? Uh, it's going to be Tim Thomas because, you know, before the series started, uh, I was on the Score Television Network and I pretty much said that it's the, one of the biggest mismatches in goaltending history. Well, after two games, everyone was emailing me and tweeting me saying, you're nuts, obviously, Braden Holpe's a lot better than we thought. And he is, and I'm giving the kid a lot of credit. But we can't forget that Tim Thomas is Tim Thomas. And the guy steps up when the lights are the brightest, and he will outduel Braden Holpe. I mean, we, we've seen the problems that Washington has had all year long. Their scoring is sporadic in that sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. Their defense has giant holes in it. And their goaltending, without Vokun or Neuwirth, is Braden Holpe. And whether you think he played great or not in the first two games, which I do believe he did play great, he's still Braden Holpe. He's still a kid. I mean, you look at game one, as well as he played, that overtime goal should not have gone in. Tim Thomas makes right. that stop 100 times out of 100 shots. Most NHL goalies will make that stop. He was a tired rookie who just faced 30 shots. And that 31st was... You know, it got under him, and, and it was at when the most important time of the game. So I think goaltending is going to be the huge issue there. But it's been a physical series. I didn't think it was going to be this physical. Uh, a lot of hits in all three games. You know, it's not often that you talk about a number one seed needing their goalie to steal a game against the eighth seed, but that's exactly what happened last night. Henry Lundqvist just absolutely stole one from Ottawa. Yep. Um, what can Ottawa do... If I mean, if, if Lundqvist is going to steal games, you got to think the Rangers are going to play a little bit better than they did last night. Is there anything Ottawa can do in that series? They can get him hurt. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, 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 it's kind of a joke, but in all honesty, Ottawa played a fantastic hockey game last night. Ottawa did everything right. Ottawa got opportunities. Ottawa threw everything but the kitchen sink. And when Henrik Lundqvist, you could just see it in the first period. When he's in that zone... There's nothing that's getting by him. Absolutely nothing. And, you know, the fact that Ottawa's got a very good offense, and, I mean, this year Paul McLean's turned that offense around uh, like I, I never. I did not have them in the playoffs. And anyone who had them competing with the New York Rangers uh, or says they had them there is probably lying to you. Um, they've got a great offense, and I know they were missing Alfredson, but still they had a ton of shots on him. And he just was who he is, Hendrick Lundqvist. In my opinion, he's, he's the Hart Trophy winner. I don't think he will win. If I had a vote, I would vote for Hendrick Lundqvist because the New York Rangers have won so many one-goal games this year. And what they did last night was typical New York Rangers hockey. They relied on their goaltender, and when they got an opportunity, they potted the, the, the winner. And, I mean, that's basically what they've done all year. So, so many people are shocked. I'm not shocked. That's what they've done all year long. You know, one one last series I want to ask you about before we let you go, and it's the Sportscasters here with Rob Pizzo taking some time out of what is a busy time for anyone who covers hockey right now. You can follow him on Twitter. I really recommend it, at Rob Pizzo, and you can listen to him on The Score, and uh, you can check out the website, www.thescore.com. Um, I want to ask you about Nashville and Detroit because Nashville has built their team for years to take down Detroit, and in their best season – uh, they've got Detroit right there in the first round, and they got a 2-1 to lead on them. Have you seen enough out of them to believe that they can ultimately outlast Detroit? I absolutely have. Uh, anyone who listens to me on the podcast or watches the Score Television Network knows full well, I'm a Detroit Red Wings fan. I always have been. And before this series, I picked Nashville to win. 
and uh, I, I think they finally have got it. But the key, even though they've made some additions that I think have really helped out, guys like Paul Gostad, guys like Kostitin, guys like Alex Radulov, I think the key is still Pekka Rene. If you watched Game 3, Detroit, who are the best home team in hockey, they won 23 straight at the Joe, did everything they could to beat Nashville, and Pekka Rene was the difference. Pekka Rene is the only guy I've seen, the first guy I've seen in a long, long time, who could have Thomas Holmstrom's big, fat butt right in front of him and still not only make the save, but suck up the rebound. I, every shot was just stop a play, stop a play, stop a play. Pekka Rene is a big goalie who can move side to side. He can do everything. I would give my left arm to have a Pekka Rene in net for my team right now. Nothing against Jimmy Howard. I mean, Jimmy Howard has had a fantastic year. Uh, I know he had some injuries that, you know, kind of deflated his race for the wins and everything else, but Pekka Rene is, is the real deal. He is, he is going to be the reason Nashville succeeds. They, they can't be happy with that first-round playoff appearance anymore for so many years they never had a star player just getting to the playoffs hey look at nashville nobody on their team they made the playoffs way to go and then they won the playoff series way to go they're past that point now they're an elite team and they have a shot at winning i, I really believe this team could win the stanley cup if they get on a good run and if pekka rene is healthy and playing well so yes i truly believe they beat detroit in this series you know, from this conversation, what I'm going to take away is as much as things change in the NHL, it stays the same because these playoffs, seemingly more than any and I can remember in the last years, it's all about the goalies. Just about yep. every series we've talked about, you know, the difference is the goalie. It's whether it's Marc-Andre Fleury being a turnstile in that series or it's Lundqvist stealing games or it's Redding stealing games or quick. I mean, it's just it's the year of the goalie. And, um, you know, and Tim Thomas we mentioned, so we could probably, and if we did, Spent more time on St. Louis and San Jose. We talk about the two goalies in St. Louis. If we spent more time on Chicago and Phoenix, we'd probably talk about Mike Smith. Uh, you, this is the last thing, and I'll let you go. You got, you've sure. got a week to look at it. Where, what would you, where would you put your Stanley Cup pick if you could make it right now instead oh, of what you wow. might have last week? That is, you know, obviously, I have a pool that a friend of mine ran, and you had to pick uh, ten skaters, and I picked ten Pittsburgh Penguins and ten Vancouver Canucks because <laughs> I was positive. Uh, that they were going to meet in the finals. And I know sometimes that's the, the easy pick, uh, but I did it anyway, and you know where that got me. So I don't know how much uh, stock you want to put into my picks, but um, clearly Philadelphia has impressed me, not because they're beating Pittsburgh three games to nothing, but they've played this mind game and the off-ice game so well. They suckered Pittsburgh into playing their game in Game 3. Pittsburgh fell right off the rails, and Sidney Crosby led them there. Sidney Crosby got into this, this you know, Sean Avery-type game that I don't know why he was doing it. They don't pay him to be a pest. They don't pay him to knock guys' gloves out of the way. They pay him to score, and everything he did, his team started to follow. James Neal's not the type of guy that's going around giving guys headshots. I mean, Aaron Ashram, what he did to Braden Shen was criminal. It was absolutely criminal. You cannot cross-check somebody in the face. So I think the fact that Philadelphia did that, and they've shown a resilience that I didn't know they had. I didn't know that they could fall down three straight games to the Pittsburgh Penguins and by huge numbers and still find a way to come back. So you know what? If Ilya Brzezgalov doesn't fall off a mountain, even though he kind of has this, uh, this series, <laughs> well, if he plays universe. the way we've seen him play at times, 
watch out for the Philadelphia Flyers. Okay, so you got Philly in the East. Who are you going to take in the West? Oh, man, in the West. Uh, you know, the one team that I keep saying is they finally decide to have their offense show up because, as we talked about earlier, they got just a great uh, a great goaltender and some great defense. The LA Kings, I'm not saying they're a Stanley Cup contender, but that could be your Cinderella team in the West for sure. Um, the other team that I still look at is the Blackhawks, and I think they are very under the radar this year. They have some suspect goaltending, but, I mean, Crawford has looked pretty good at times as well. Um, so I think with their experience, they got a lot of guys there still from the, 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 the cup-winning team two years ago. Chicago might be my pick there because when you look at every other series, you just don't know who's going to come out of it. All right. All right, Pizzo, thanks for doing this. We really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Um, we'll keep an eye on you up there in the Great White North, and uh, we'll talk to you maybe later in the playoffs or something. Thanks a lot. Anytime. Thanks, man. All right. Got to thank Rob Pizzo for being on the show. Also want to thank all of our guests today, Kirk Morrison and Bob and Bill, the authors of the book Game Over, Jerry Sandusky, Penn State, and the Culture of Silence. All right. We're going to close things off here with pick four, as we always do. Don and I took a beating last week. We both went one and three. Uh, I won my winning pitcher, or my pitcher of the week, had Matt Cain and the Giants over the Pirates. Got a shutout there. I lost the Flyers over the Penguins in game one. We both lost that game. Uh, I had the Rangers being up 3 to nothing in the series. They're up 2-1. to one. They were an overtime goal away from that one. And I had the Canucks winning game one over the Kings. I thought the Kings would get a split, but I thought it would be game two, so that didn't work out. So I went 1-3. and three. I'm 36-25. and 25. Uh, Don, your win was the Bruins over the Capitals in game one of the series. They won that game one to nothing in overtime on the Chris Kelly slap shot goal. Uh, you lost the game of the week, like I said, Flyers over Penguins. Your, your pitcher was Verlander, um, lost that one. And the Devils series is 1-1. to one. They have no chance at 3-0. So 1-3 there as well. You want to kick us off with the game of the week? Yeah, the game of the week this week, we have the Rangers at the Sens. That's game four. Uh, Rangers up 2-1 right now. That's tomorrow night, Wednesday, 7.30 on CNBC. Give me the Senators. I think I picked this to be a long series uh, that – Pick is a lot closer to being right if they come back with a win. So I don't expect them to lose two in, two in a row at home. So let me get the sense. You know, I'm going to take the Rangers because I think they might have demoralized the Senators last night. The Senators played the best game they can play, yeah. and they lost one nothing. Lundqvist stole the game. I don't know that the Senators are going to get the goaltending that they've gotten so far this whole series. I think the Rangers are going to score a couple more goals. So I'm going to take the Rangers. All right, my pitcher this week, I'm going to go with Jordan Zimmerman and his uh, 0-1 record and his 1.29 ERA. That's tomorrow at 7. He's pitching against the Astros. Okay, I'm going to take a little bit of a risk. I'm going to take Josh Beckett and the Red Sox. Uh, that game is tomorrow. Uh, they play at home. The reason it's a risk is because the Rangers are 8-2. Um, but they're at home. The Red Sox have been better. They're on a bit of a roll. Beckett's 1-1. One one. His last start was really good. So I'm going to take a little bit of a risk. I don't want to burn out every ace in the league just yet. So I'm going to I'm gonna take Beckett and hope for the best. All right, my host choice this week. Again, I'm trying to uh, assume that my picks that I made 
a few days ago are still what I believe in. So I'm going to go Blues at the Sharks. This game is Thursday night on NBC Sports Network at 10.30. Uh, the Blues are up 2-1 in that series. I picked the Sharks to win it in 6 or 7. So give me the Sharks in that game. Okay, I'm going to go the opposite of what I did last week. I'm going to take the Kings to finish off the Canucks. Um, that game is tomorrow or Wednesday. Uh that's April 18th. They play 10 o'clock on the NBC Sports Network. I just think that the Canucks are dead, and I think the Kings aren't going to want to give them any life. They're not going to let that series go back to Vancouver, and uh, I'm going to take the Kings to finish them off. I was going to ask you real quickly. We talked in the other segment. You asked which was a bigger surprise about who right. was down 3-0. Uh, which team do you think, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, has the better chance to come back if there is going to be a miracle Yeah, comeback? I still think it's the Penguins. Because of Quick or because of the talent on the Penguins? Just because of the talent on the Penguins and the depth. I, listen, I think I'd put them at about a 4.5% chance, <laughs> and I'd put the Canucks at a 1.5% chance. Right. Because I think Quick is going to definitely win one more game out of the four. He's going to bring it enough at least one time to win that series. And I just I think Crosby's out of shape. You know, I don't think yeah. he's got enough in him to take that series to seven and win it. So it's I'd put it real low, but I'd still put the Penguins ahead a little bit. We'll have to have a talk on another podcast about Danny Breer. I mean, since we were both oh, he's great. Sabres fans. But yeah. all right, my bold prediction this week, uh, I'm going to kind of piggyback off the prediction I made last week, and I guess I'm going to double down on the Devils. I'm going to say there is no game six. That means the Devils win the next three games and take the series in five. You know, I have the exact same thing. Um, I think that the Devils have kind of proven that they're they're just a lot better than this kind of average Florida team. I think it was going to be real important for Florida to get two wins at home. They only got one. So I just had the same thing. I, I think that the Devils are going to win the next three games. And by the time we're on again next week, we're going to be talking about them and the Rangers getting ready for a really epic series. Yeah, so. All right, that's going to do it for today. Again, I want to thank our guests, Kirk Morrison, Rob Pizzo, and our two authors, Bill and Bob. Uh, definitely check out that book if you get a chance. Um, that's it for this week. Don, cue the hip. All right.